Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 28, where we're going to be looking at another classic text on uh, um, one of the solas. This isn't the text, but uh, it's one of many that uh, would work for the whole sola fide theme by faith alone. It was on October 31st, 1517, uh, All Saints Day, when Martin Luther, a very faithful, diligent Roman Catholic Augustinian monk, nailed to a church door in the castle church there in Wittenberg, 95 propositions or theses that he wanted to just begin a dialogue about. He picked October 31st, All Saints Day, which we celebrate usually as Halloween, as a day because he knew a lot of people would be coming to church. And at that time, since there wasn't mass email and spam, you would just take a, a note and you would nail it on the church door. So as all the believers were coming in and out of the church, they could look and read it, whatever was there. Well, Luther wrote these primarily as a reaction against something that was happening at the time. The Roman Catholic Church uh, was busy in Germany selling indulgences. Indulgences are um, uh, basically rights that the Pope sometimes approves to have uh, for sale uh, in his area, his control around uh, Roman Catholic believers, where believers can purchase certain uh, kind of get out of jail free points. In the Roman Catholic system, they teach in purgatory. Purgatory is a place where uh, believers go after they die before they get to heaven. It's a place where you suffer kind of a hell between death and glorification. You go there and you suffer the torments of hell to pay the penalty for your sin to kind of do a uh, fiery penance. And so purgatory uh, was this it doesn't appear in the Bible was this a doctrine that was invented and then was used by the church to extract money out of people. And uh, that is what was going on. Now, at this point, when he nailed those 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, he wasn't he didn't have a problem with purgatory. Luther didn't or even with the sale of indulgences. He just felt that the pope was unaware that there were abuses going on in his realm and that Germany was one of the places the abuses were happening. And that surely the pope would be glad to know that he was fighting for the truth. In purgatory, believers suffer for ages. And so when a indulgence is offered by the Pope, it allows people to purchase time off, kind of, you know, a fire sale, get out of purgatory free type of thing um, where you, you pay this money and the Pope then declares that you can kind of spend less time or maybe in certain instances not go to purgatory at all. 
How could this happen? Well, because the Roman Catholic Church also teaches there is this huge repository of good works that really godly people, people like Mother Teresa or Mary or whatever, people who are so godly, they have so many good works to their credit that not only can they get into heaven without going to purgatory, they actually have extra good works which go into what is called the treasury of merit. That way, when you buy an indulgence, you can skip because these kind of funds uh, have taken from the treasury of merit from extra godly saints and been applied to you. Now, just so you know, I think a lot of people don't realize this. The Roman Catholic Church never changes its doctrine. It can't. And a lot of times when you grow up in America and you see the Roman Catholic Church in America, you think... You understand what Roman Catholicism is, but believe me, you don't know anything about what it's like unless you go to a country where they have real Roman Catholicism. Like when I went to Brazil and you saw, you know, some girl on her knees and crawling on her knees um, for who knows how long she'd been going saying, you know, Hail Mary's every so often praying the rosary um, until her knees were bloody and raw leaving a trail of blood behind so that God would approve of her. When you see a huge wall full of carved body parts of all imaginable shapes and sizes to offer up to a certain patron saint so that they can be healed of certain diseases. This is what's happening and has always happened in the Roman Catholic system. Not so much in America where the Roman Catholic Church is quite liberal and in rebellion. But this is what was going on in Germany. And specifically, there was one man who, John Tetzel, who was really a nuisance. He was one of the criers, one of the men commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church to go out and collect indulgences. And he was good. He was like a used car salesman. You, you got to buy this now. If you don't buy this, you're going to be in purgatory. You know, you, this is in, you don't get a chance like this very often. I mean, it's time to do it now. Do it now, now, now. And so he would, he would badger people and scare people and threaten people and warn people. And people were buying indulgences where you get a little piece of paper and then you take it and, you, you know, that's your kind of, you get time off in purgatory if you, you purchase these indulgences. Of course, why would the Pope do this? Because he needs funds to build a cathedral or raise the standard of living or whatever. So John Tetzel was such a nuisance. It bothered Luther so much, not because of purgatory, not because of indulgences, just because of his irreverence. He would make up little ditties like, um, you know, when a coin in the coffer sings, a soul from purgatory springs. Things like that. Where Luther just, it eked him because he saw the abuse, he saw the avarice, he saw that this man wasn't concerned about the souls of people, he was a money raiser. And so at first, Luther nailed those 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg just because he wanted to start dialogues about some abuses that were going on. Little did he know that those things would be immediately taken down, translated into multiple languages and distributed all over Germany. And pretty soon Luther was the talk of all Germany. Not only that, these crowds were coming to hear him preach and they were packing out his church 
the cast great it's a huge church too castle church they were packing it out to hear him preach through books of the bible can you believe that somebody actually preached through books of the bible sequentially anyways that's what luther was doing luther at this point was saved but his doctrine was in its infancy and the holy spirit was then illuminating his mind to the truth. Well, as soon as the 95 theses went out, he was attacked so viciously from so many Roman Catholics that he studied the scriptures harder. And when he did, he found out that even more of what he thought he believed was true was false. And so it forced him to become more orthodox the more he would study the scriptures. So this went on for several years. He had to appear before uh, diets at his groups of uh, um, inquisitors, so to speak, who questioned him. And he had to just defend himself. Um, I might give you the stats later. But basically, Luther was such a hardworking soul that almost half the books being published at this time were Luther's. Of all the books being published were from Martin Luther's pen. He bombarded the world, carpet bombed the world with scriptural teaching. And that's what caused the Reformation. Well, on April 17, 1521, the Roman Catholic Church finally called for another diet to be held at Worms, a theological meeting uh, where they were going to confront, expose, and condemn Luther as a heretic. Luther's opponent was Johann Eck, who was a very fine debater, had a very strong, booming voice, was very logical. And they told Luther that he would have safe passage to Worms where he would be tried. Well, that wasn't very good because not too long before that, another man was given safe passage John Huss, and then they captured him and burned him at the stake. But Luther went anyways, knowing that his life was in danger. He went anyways, and with fear and trembling, made it after the help of some friends. He finally made it to Worms, where he was met by knights and a huge crowd that were very pleased to see him, which Luther thought was kind of strange. I mean, he knew he had his followers in Wittenberg, and he knew that his writings were popular, but he he didn't know what to think. Well, during the Diet, Luther was examined by Johann Eck, a very passionate man who, by degrees, showed everyone that Luther had indeed moved outside the pale of Roman Catholic doctrine and therefore was a heretic. Though Eck was not able to pass a sentence, everybody knew that the sentence meant that Luther was going to die, be burned at the stake. Now, though Eck won the debate... It was a huge victory for Luther. And he didn't even realize this at the time. He, he just, God was using Martin Luther as the, the point of the spear for the Reformation. And he didn't even realize it. It's just like, it just came to him in hindsight. And historians, as they look back, go, yeah, look at what happened. Luther was bummed out that he was proven by Eck to not be Roman Catholic. And yet this disappointment was Luther's greatest victory because 
All of Germany was so oppressed and so fed up with the oppression and the constant indulgences and the money extrapolations and the religious hypocrisy that Luther, when he lost the battle, lost the debate with Eck, sent a message to all who were present that raced across Germany that Luther stood up against the Roman Catholic Church. And he's the only one who's ever done it. And so he became the hero and the champion, you know. This guy is for us and for Germans. He's for the truth. And so what was odd is, is Luther, without realizing it, by losing, won. He won the allegiance of the entire country. Now, what Eck exposed to the terror of the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church, which Luther, I think, at this point even didn't quite understand it. It wasn't quite solidified yet, but was becoming very clear to him. Were two facts, two beliefs that Luther held, which if held to wipe out the entire Roman Catholic system. And they were these. One, the doctrine of sola scriptura. That it is the Bible and the Bible alone that gives us everything we need for faith and practice. You see, in the Roman Catholic system, the Bible is authoritative and the writings of the church fathers and the conclusions of all the church councils and all the papal statements, decrees, bulls, All of it is of equal authority to the scriptures and has to be housed in a huge library. There's so much of it. Luther comes along and says the Bible has come to believe that the Bible and the Bible alone is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. Well, that empties out the whole Catholic library. And then all of a sudden, then where do you get purgatory? Well, it's not from the Bible. Where do you get praying to Mary? Well, it's not in the Bible. Where do you get the worship of saints? It's not in the Bible. Where do you get indulgences? It's not in the Bible. You see how it just, in that one statement, you wipe out the whole system. And that is why the those who were against Luther, when they saw his writing, they saw him stick to the scriptures, stick to the scriptures, stick to the scripture, refer to the scriptures, refer to the scriptures. And they were freaking out because they realized if this catches on, we're done for. So that became one of the main fundamental pillars of the Reformation that the Bible and the Bible alone was the sole authority, the sole rule for all matters of doctrine, faith and practice. Secondly, was justification by faith alone. This also was a terror to the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Why would it be a terror? Well, it was a terror for this reason. The Roman Catholic Church taught that salvation came through the church, not Christ. What that means is, is if you want to go to heaven, you can't go directly to Jesus. No, no, no. You have to go through us. And if you're good enough, and if we don't get mad at you, and if we say so, we will give you what you need so you can get to heaven through us. Well, when somebody... When your salvation is held by another sinful human, that's bad. Especially when people, because of sin, use their power over people to abuse. 
And so this is what was happening. If you could just go to Jesus in faith and be justified and right before God, then why do you need the whole priest system and the mass and the infusion of grace and all these sacraments to get you saved? Well, you don't. And that's what scared them. That's what scared them. Instead of a simple message of salvation by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Roman Catholic Church substituted this huge ritualistic monster that was designed to foster dependence on the church by the people. So that the church could then use their dependence and the fear they held over them to their own advantage. And so this is what we want to look at this morning for our second sermon in Reformation month. I want to take you to a text which teaches us that justification is by faith alone or as it is commonly known sola fide. This is one of the primary things that distinguishes Roman Catholics from Protestants. And if you don't know what Protestant means, it means those who protest against the Roman Catholic view that justification is by works. So turn to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 21 through 31. If you remember last week, if you were here last week, we went through the first part of this. Um, we went, we looked at verse 23. We went, talked about the context, how before this section, Paul labors to show that all men are guilty. If you're a Jew, you're guilty before God and you're a sinner. If you're a Gentile, you're guilty before God if you're, you're a sinner. If you're uh, you know, a moral person, you're guilty before God and you're a sinner. And he just ends with this whole string of quotations from the Old Testament that just let everybody know that every single person is a sinner. There are no exceptions. Everybody needs salvation. No one gets to heaven on the basis of their works. So now in verse verses 21 and following, he begins to, uh, to explain the solution to the problem that everybody's a sinner on their way to hell. And he keeps going um, several more chapters after this, but we're just going to read the context, verse 21 through 31, and then we'll look at verse 28 specifically. Paul writes, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration. I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, from verse 28, I want to point out two important concepts related to sola fide by faith alone. One, so that you can understand how a person is justified. And two, so you can also look at your own life to see if you yourselves have been justified by that one way. 
First, you are justified by faith. Look at verse 28. Paul says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith. And I just want you to know every word here is significant. You start out, look at that little three letter word for as a reference back to everything that Paul has said, namely that all men are sinners justified um, by faith, by grace, so that no one has a right to boast about their salvation before God. That's what he said immediately before that. So the word for is especially designed to fetch into our minds. You have no reason to boast before God if you are saved. None. That means you you didn't contribute anything, not even a speck of dust. Otherwise you said, well, that's my speck of dust. See, you could boast if you did a little bit. See, there's something inside of man that makes them just long to just want to help God save them. You know, it's like, you know, even if it's just a little hair breadth, you know, it's like, well, you get to heaven. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus did all that. But look at my hair. And I think it's longer than yours. I think it's a little thicker in diameter too. You see, we, we want, men want, they lust to be, to help God save them. They just want to have a part of their pride, their desire for self-sufficiency and autonomy and to be their own God just makes them lust for that. Well, that whole idea that we have no right in whatsoever to boast before God explains why Paul says what he does in the very next verse, verse 28, for we maintain that man is justified by faith. When Paul says we maintain, he is saying that we have come to believe we have become thoroughly convinced of, we have come become to the place where we know for certain that's what he has. We maintain, we hold this truth to be self-evident. You could say that man is justified by faith, by faith. Now, let's just break this down a bit. What does it mean to be justified? We talked about this last week, but we're going to talk about it today because it's important and you might not have been here last week. And if you were, then you need a review. What does it mean to be justified? Justification is a word that basically means to be declared right before God. It's a legal term to declare someone right or just before God. When somebody places their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, God declares them to be right. It's a legal thing. It's he's the judge. We have offended the judge. And the judge says, I declare you just in my sight because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, that person is justified. Please understand That justification is not that God makes you righteous. There's a difference. He declares you to be righteous. Even if you're saved and justified before God, you're still a sinner, aren't you? We still sin, right? I mean, that's what Paul goes on to say in Romans, that old wretched man that I am. Why? Because he keeps sinning. So justification isn't when God makes you righteous. It's when he declares you to be righteous based off of what Jesus did. Now, remember, since we are all sinners, if we're going to be justified, God can't set aside his justice. He has to have his justice satisfied. He will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. And if we are sinners, then we are guilty. Therefore, God must punish us. So now what are we going to do? Well, God then has to figure out a way, which he did, 
to satisfy his justice that he might justify those who are ungodly. And so that's why he sent Jesus to earth to die on the cross, to be a sin bearer, to become a curse for us, to die in our place as a substitute for us. Now, I want to show you this. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53, which we probably all know is one of the great servant songs of the book of Isaiah. There are several of these in uh, the book where Isaiah writes about this servant, in this case, the suffering servant um, who would come. This is a picture of the Messiah. It's a prophecy of the Messiah, of Jesus before, you know, he even came on the scene. Now, it is written as if it already occurred, which is a common prophetic device. But here... I want, I'm just going to have you look at a few verses and do some quick commentary. I want you to see this whole idea of substitution and how that relates to justification. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah 53. It says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Notice, he bore our griefs and our sorrows. So even though there are griefs, there are sorrows, he bore them, not us. He was a substitute. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him and by his scourging we are healed. Notice that Jesus described as being pierced, crushed and chastened for our iniquities, our well-being in order that we may be healed. Here, you again see over and over again that we've done the bad deed, and yet Jesus is suffering for it. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Notice, we're the wayward sheep. We're the ones who go our own way. We're the ones who disobeyed God and rebelled against God and did our own thing and violated the word of God. And so what was the consequences? God took all of our iniquities and he laid them. They fell upon Jesus, not us. Substitution. But that's not all. Look at uh, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Here, Jesus described, you know, as the sacrificial lamb. Jesus would be crushed, put to grief as a guilt offering. He's the animal, so to speak, as the picture in the Old Testament. The, the, the one that was innocent party that was slain on behalf of somebody else, a substitute. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, that is the anguish of Christ's soul, he, that is the just God, would see it, that is the suffering of Jesus Christ, and be satisfied, that is his holy justice would be satisfied, seeing Christ suffer in the place of sinners. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. How could God do that? Because Jesus suffered, bore, was crushed, etc., in place of as a substitute for sinners. And how or why does this happen? Uh, What is the mechanism? He says it very plainly at the end of verse 11, as he will bear their iniquities. That is, they commit the iniquities, but Jesus bears them um, on his frame on the cross. Verse 12, therefore, I will allot him that is Jesus a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. Here, Jesus described as a drink offering being poured out to death. 
And he was numbered with transgressors. That is, he hung on the cross between two thieves. Yet he himself bore the sins of many. Jesus suffered for the sins of others and interceded for the transgressors. Having satisfied the wrath of God against sin, he seeks sinners out and intercedes for them before the Father, having suffered their penalty and their place. And that people is as clear a description of the love of God found anywhere in the scripture. I mean, what is love? That God gave his only begotten son, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrates his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, that is it, you know, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's it. That Jesus, very God incarnate, would come in order to satisfy the justice of God. He himself would suffer the penalty that would was due us for our iniquities, our sins. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. He was crushed for us. Okay, back to our text. That substitution, that relates very closely to justification because God is able to justify us because of the substitutionary death of Christ. But now he says in Romans three twenty-eight. A man is justified by faith. Now, what is faith? Well, faith is that instrument that lays hold of Christ and his work on the cross so that God can declare us to be right. But the problem is, is there are different kinds of faith, two primarily different, different categories of faith. And you need to understand these different categories so that you aren't confused and so you aren't tr- using the wrong kind of faith and end up in hell thinking you're on your way to heaven. One kind of faith that we can have is just a merely intellectual faith, a, a faith that believes in the facts, a sense, gives a sense that they are true. Yes, I know who Jesus is. Yes, I know he's born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, son of God, died on the cross, buried, rose again the third day, did the miracles. Yeah, I believe all that. I believe the Bible's true. I believe it. I believe it. Okay, that's one kind. Intellectual faith. Then there's another kind of faith that is intellectual, but also trusts in. Yes, it has that knowledge, but it also trusts in, relies upon that knowledge. It's not merely agreeing that, oh yeah, that's true, but it's trusting in what is said to be true. Let's say one day, uh, we're no, we're talking and I look down and I notice you have this like big heavy duty leather belt on. I think, man, that's a pretty heavy duty belt you got there. You go, oh yeah, I could probably lift a car. I said, do you think it would lift your weight? Oh, no problem. Look at the thing. It's huge. I said, oh, good. So you're convinced that it would hold you. Oh yeah. All right. Well, let's um, go to downtown LA, go up on the roof of one of these skyscrapers. And, uh, you know, they have those little swing arms they use that they put over the edge to hold the window washer carts and lower them down. We're just going to hook a little hook onto your belt buckle and dangle you out over the city. Okay. No way. I go, well, why? What's wrong? You just told me there was no problem that your belt could hold you up. Yeah, but I'm not trusting my life into the hands of some belt. Well, that's exactly the kind of intellectual faith that doesn't save anybody. Oh man, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and rose again the third day. He's the son of God. He was born of a virgin. I'm telling you, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. 
Really? Well, then let's put your whole life and trust. Let's let him control you, keep you from sins, direct you, move you to sacrifice for him. Oh, well, I am not going to do that. Then you're not saved. You're not saved. You see, saving faith is a trusting faith, not merely an intellectual faith. What kind of faith do you have? That is the issue. What kind of faith do you have? Now, remember what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. They follow me. They don't just hear his voice and then not follow. Then they're lost sheep. If they don't follow the shepherd, they're lost sheep. A man is justified by faith, a faith that trusts in and relies upon Jesus completely. Be warned, not all faith is saving faith. You see this in the Gospels. You see this in the Gospels. For instance, in John chapter 6, Jesus has this huge group of disciples. They're following him. Why? Because Jesus is an incredible teacher. Because Jesus is doing miracles. Because Jesus is able to feed thousands Because Jesus can out-argue anybody. I mean, he's the guy to hang with if you want to, you know, have the champion. And so he's got a large group of disciples. But what's interesting is, is Jesus knows that many of them only have an intellectual faith. If he were to ask them, do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? Yeah. Do you believe that he can do miracles? Well, of course he can. I mean, I was there. I've seen him, you know. So that they, they, they have this intellectual faith. Until Jesus decides to weed some of them out. And so he says, you know, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And all of a sudden their eyes open up. What? And Jesus says, oh, you have problems with that? Well, just wait until you see me sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. What? You know what? I know what is in some of your hearts implied because I'm omniscient. I know everything. What? And John 6 verse 66 says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They quit following. Why? Because their faith was only a intellectual faith. It wasn't a trusting faith. True saving faith trusts and relies upon Jesus. And James addresses faith. If you've, you know, ever read James two, chapter two, verses 14 and following, it seems like he's contradicting Paul in Romans chapter three, but he's not. Paul in Romans three is saying, this is the kind of faith that saves you. James is saying, and this is what saving faith produces in a believer's life. So Paul constantly says, no works, no works, no works. James constantly says, Faith, that is, after you're saved, produces works, produces works, produces works. And this is what he says. This is just a couple of the verses. You can read the whole passage at your leisure this morning, this this week during a quiet time. But look at verse 18. He says this. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it quick. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, but the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? 
Now, this has been used by many people to say faith without works that save a person is useless. No, when it comes to saving faith, it's without works. Once you are saved, then faith then causes you the grace of God moves you to obey God. That's where the works come in. And that's what James is talking about. And then he goes on to quote that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness to affirm that. But just remember that you can know all about Jesus. You can have a faith and yet not know Christ like those people in, you know, Matthew 7, verse 19 and following. Lord, Lord, have we not? They know who Jesus is. They're in the church. They're trusting in Jesus. They're doing works in Jesus name. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It's like, well, didn't they believe in you? Well, yeah, they had an intellectual faith. They knew who I was. They were in the church. They said they believed me. They said they loved me. They said they followed me. They're even active. But they didn't have a relationship with me. They didn't have saving faith in me. So we learn here from Paul, the first part of verse 28, that a man is justified, made right before God on the basis of faith, which is a believing, trusting faith that relies upon what Jesus did and who Jesus is. Then to clarify things more thoroughly, we come to the second point that you are justified apart from the works of the law. Look at verse 28. Paul says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This phrase apart from the works of the law is huge. You know, you just be glad we're in this, this series because I could like just bog down forever right here. What you need to understand, I'm going to try and give you paint you a parallel here so you can kind of get the parallel in your mind because it's great once you once you get it here. Paul knows that in his audience, he has Jewish readers. And he knows how Jews think because he's a Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He even describes himself as according to the law of Moses, keeping the law. I was blameless. He was fanatic. So he knows what the Jews understood at the time, what was going through the minds of his readers. And he labors, he loves them so much. He's trying to help them understand that salvation isn't of your efforts. And then God says, okay, you've been good enough. I'm going to save you. That just doesn't work. It's apart from works. It's apart from works. I don't know how else he could have said it. He says it over and over again, apart from works, no works, that no one could boast, which implies no works. But you might ask yourself, well, how did the Jews come to that place? Was it always that way? Some have thought wrongly that in the Old Testament, people were saved by works and in the New Testament, they're saved by grace. No, there's only been one way and only one way that anybody has ever been saved. And that's been by grace through faith. And Paul, and we don't have time to go there, argues for this in Romans chapter four, when he talks about Abraham, who was justified before God before the giving of the law of Moses and before he was circumcised. Oh, it's, it's a brilliant argument. Now, yes, say, well, then how did they get there? If that's how it was, if Abraham was justified by faith, apart from the works of the law before the law was giving, and they see themselves as children, children of Abraham and followers of Abraham, then how in the world did they ever get to the place where they're trusting in their works? The same way that everybody gets there. Who doesn't know Christ? By small degrees, usually. What happened is this. You remember the great statement in the beginning of Deuteronomy? 
Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law right before the end of the promised land. They received the law in Leviticus and Exodus and numbers. They've got the law, but right before they enter the promised land, Moses writes an expanded edition and helps them see how to apply the law to the societies that they're going to be setting up when they go into the land. So he's writing this second law. And in the beginning first chapters, he basically lays down kind of a historical summary, gives the 10 commandments. And then in chapter six, he gives this huge statement, which is called the great Shema, which means to hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your might and with all your strength. There it is. The great Shema. And then what comes after that? The law. So what does that mean? It means this. First, you know who God is. Second, you believe in God, which means you have a relationship with God. And out of your love to that relationship, then you obey the law. The law doesn't give you the relationship. The relationship makes you want to obey the law out of love. That's how it always was. And it's never been any different. That's why Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. If you love me, you will So there's first the relationship, then the obedience. The obedience doesn't cause the relationship. The relationship should lead to the obedience. That's how it's always been. Well, then the question is, well, then how do they, how do they miss it? Because at the end of Deuteronomy, there are blessings and curses. You remember that? Yeah, the blessings and curses. And so they're ending the book and there was... These blessings and curses. And this is how they thought. This is how a lot of people think. This is how a lot of Christians think in the church today. I mean, just ask yourself. When I explain this, you're going to go, I think I've done that sometimes. Here it is. You disobey God. Things go bad in your life. And you think, God doesn't like me. Right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, you can go ahead. Yeah, okay. People are smiling. God, yeah. I hope nobody's watching. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's what happens, right? You know, you something, your car breaks down. Oh, I must be sinning. You know, we have this idea that if we sin, then bad things happen. If we obey, then good things happen. And that's what the blessing and cursings are kind of teaching. Okay, as long as I keep doing things, God will like me. God will like me. God will like me. Now, notice how. All of a sudden you've switched and you've implied that the reason for the blessings and curses was to maintain a relationship with God to keep oneself saved. Instead of to express love to God, God says, do this and I'll bless you. You do this and I'll curse you. Not because I'm cutting myself off from you, but because I'm going to chasten you to correct you. So you'll do what's right. So I can bless you again because we have this relationship. It's discipline. It's discipline. God is the God who justifies the ungodly by faith. That's how Abraham was justified. Well, the Jews over the course of time began to trust more and more in their works until pretty soon they were very concerned about keeping the law being Jews because that is what got them into heaven. And that was just this is the permeating thought that Paul writes to refute, especially in Romans and Galatians. Now, that was not God's intention. It was not his intention from the time of Abraham, which Paul uses as an argument to explain that. 
And so this is the same kind of thing that Luther was dealing with. As a matter of fact, when Luther wrote his commentary on this verse, this is what he said. Now, I'm going to read this. There's going to be a couple things that might make you perk up. Just hang tight. When the apostle says that we are justified without the deeds of the law, he does not speak of the works of faith and grace. For he who does such works does not believe that he is justified by them. While doing such works of faith, the believer seeks to be justified by faith. What the apostle means by deeds of the law are works in which the self-righteous trust as if by doing them, they are justified and so are righteous on account of their works. End quote. There are some fearful souls who are so concerned about maintaining justification by grace through faith alone. They're good for nothing. They're couch potato Christians. You know, it's, listen, I'm, I'm saved by faith. I can't do anything because it, it's, it's all of Christ and it's none of me. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so when God commands you to repent in the word of God, did you repent or did God repent? Oh, yeah. When God commands you to have faith, did you have faith or did God have faith for you? When God says, I want you to obey me and follow me, do you obey and follow him? Or does God obey and follow himself? Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I got, I, you know, I, you see that? That's what Luther says, works of grace and faith. Of course, we repent by grace. We believe by grace. We have faith by grace, right? We are justified by faith. And even that faith is a gift of God. One time I had somebody tell me, an elder uh, in a church tell me, well, um, you know, we are saved by grace through faith, but we have to believe. That's not something God gives us. I said, really? And, uh, you know, whenever that happens, if you were to look really close here on my carotid artery... You would see it throbbing rapidly. So I said, so, you know, when Jesus is speaking to those people in John six who want to do the works of God, you remember that little discussion? You know, how can we do the works of God? Yeah. And remember what Jesus says in John six twenty nine. This is the work of God that you Believe in him whom he has sent. Did you get that? What is the work God does? He causes people to believe, to have faith, in other words. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Well, I thought that's the salvation. Sure it is. I thought that's the grace. Sure it is. And it's the faith too. Philippians 1.29, we read, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You mean God grants us the ability to believe in him? Well, that's what the Bible teaches. That's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12.2 describes Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. If it was up to us, if God's grace didn't intervene, we would just run away from God. 
We love darkness rather than light for our deeds are evil. We just don't want to be bothered. And so God's grace then comes into our life and makes us want to believe. And yes, we believe by grace. That's what Luther's talking about. Bruce Demarest in his excellent work, The Cross and Salvation, writes, quote, Only the power of God through the Spirit can produce living faith in spiritually dead sinners. Faith is not the human condition for receiving new life. It is the divinely given instrument by which God saves lost souls, end quote. Yet the Jews wondered from this fundamental truth that they needed to believe God, have faith in God, be justified by that faith. And because of the relationship they then had with God, they were to obey him out of love. They missed it just like many do today. And so Paul knows this. Paul knows this. It's in the it's in his mind. He knows it's in the mind of his hearers. And that's why he spends the latter part of three here and four and five and six and seven dealing with this. Men just want to just have a part, man. They're just dying to just, God, can I just like have like a half a percent? Can it just make a half a percent me? So we get to heaven and they're all doing, you could put me on a little throne and I could just boast and we can compare with other saints that I did a little more than you did like that. No, no, that doesn't work with God. It's either all God or it's nothing. That's why Luther says anybody who knows who does the works of faith and grace never boasts in them or thinks that they are justified by them in their own merit. So this is the system that Martin Luther was trapped in. Now, just as the Jews by degrees wandered away from the truth, so the Roman Catholic Church did the exact same thing. Just like Paul then came onto the scene to kind of blow open this false idea. So Luther is used by God to come on the scene to blow open the false idea. They had substituted the Roman Catholic Church, this huge ritualistic system. And you know, rituals aren't bad. We have our own rituals here. It's not the rituals. It's when the rituals eclipse the truth and then replace the truth. And then people begin to trust in the man-made part, thinking that works somehow make them right before for God. It never happens. It never will happen. It never will happen. And so when Luther began real benignly to write those 95 theses, he thought he was doing the Pope a favor. Then it just caused this huge firestorm that just rippled out all over Germany. And at the Diet of Worms, Luther was tried by Eck and then they had to whisk him away and he didn't even know where he was going. They just kind of captured him and snuck him out. Pretty soon he was riding through the forest with these people on horses and all of a sudden he got to the Wartburg Castle. And there he let his hair grow long and his beard grow long and he wore the clothes of a soldier and, you know, kept a sword and clanking at his side and a scabbard just to kind of look the part. He kind of blended in. They thought somebody might come and try and assassinate him. And this was a radical change of life from what Luther was used to as a, you know, university professor. His biographer, one of his biographers writes that Luther, quote, complained of idleness and soft living. He took walks in the woods and delighted to find wild strawberries. He once or twice took part in the hunt and saw hares and partridges taken with nets and dogs. An occupation, he said, for idle men. His biographer goes on to say what he called idleness. Most men would call hard work. He had a multifarious correspondence going on 
answer, uh, answering uh, the theological faculty of Paris, attacks on the papal bull, a series of sermons on the epistles and the gospels for the day, tracks against celibacy and monastic vows, and above all, a complete translation of the New Testament into German from the original Greek. And this is what Luther calls, writing to his friend and mentor, Spalatin, sitting the whole day in leisure, reading Greek and Hebrew Bibles, end quote. I mean, come on. I was here a whole year, and all I was able to do is, you know, write a couple hundred sermons and 18 books and translate the whole New Testament from Greek into English. I was idle. The guy was a workhorse. Well, when Luther came to the text that we are looking at this morning, he he did something pretty daring. Romans 3.23. He translated the verse this way. For we hold that a person is justified without works of the law through faith alone. Did you notice anything different there? There's a little word there at the end. Alone. That Luther added. And oh, I am telling you. It caused him no end of grief. (laughs) Because it's not in the Greek. He shouldn't have stuck it in there. And of course, at this time, you know, the Roman Catholic legions were clawing and scratching at every single thing he wrote, trying to prove him to be a heretic and disqualify him in the eyes of the people. So here, Luther, when he's translating this, he comes and the whole context just is so definitive that, well, if there's no boasting, then he's talking about faith. And when he says without law, he means faith alone. And so he puts alone in there. Now, you know what? If you have a Bible, a decent Bible translation, it has a lot of words in italics. Those are added to clarify things. So it's not unusual. And so he was severely criticized by his Roman Catholic opponents because it didn't appear in the Greek and he put it in there. He was playing fast and loose. The word of God, which is pretty interesting for a group of people who have an entire library of works that are equal authority to the Bible. And so he was one who defied the Roman Catholic tyranny. And now he has translated uh, the Bible, the New Testament, into the common language of people. And he did an excellent job because he was raised as a peasant. So he knew peasant language really well and academic language really well and the original languages really well. So he was able to take all of this and write a very clear understandable version of the bible to common german people that was amazing and did it during his leisure at wartburg castle while he was doing a million other things well luther's day you have to think about this were spent just dealing with attacks all the time. Even in Wartburg Castle, things were brought to him and he was just constantly battling and fighting and people were attacking and how this is how he saw it People are going to hell. People are dying thinking they can be justified by their works and they need to know the truth. And so he didn't have a lot of tact sometimes when dealing with his Roman Catholic opponents. He saw them as those leading people to hell and often responded like Jesus did. You know, when he said, you vipers, you blind guides of the blind, you snakes, you know, um, when, you know, Jesus was pretty aggressive. 
um, with people. And Luther was too, but Luther might not have had the, the sanctified quality that Jesus did. Um, and when his critics began to attack him and attack him and attack him, finally he was just provoked, you know. there are t- I get attacked sometimes. I just, you know, got like an eight-page letter from somebody t- explaining to me why I was a heretic. But, you know, I don't get those a whole lot anymore. Like, periodically I do. But, you know, I don't get them by the truckload. And Luther was getting them by the truckload, and he was just kind of fed up with a bunch of unbelievers trying to tell him how to understand the Bible when they themselves weren't saved. They themselves didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. They were trusting in their works, and they were trusting in a huge false system that he just made him sick. And so he finally got provoked to the place where he wrote a document called an open letter on translating because they were so irritated about his translation of Romans 3:28. And so on September 15th in 1530 from Nuremberg, Luther writes this. Why should I even bother to talk about translating so much? If I were to explain all the reasons and considerations behind my words, I would need an entire year. I have learned by experience that what an art and what a task translating is. So I will not tolerate some papal donkey or mule acting as my judge or my critic. This is a mild portion from Luther, by the way. He says, they have not tried it. If anyone does not like my translation, he can ignore it. And may the devil repay him for it if he dislikes it or criticizes my translations without my knowing knowledge or permission. If it needs to be criticized, I will do it myself. And if I do not do it, then let them leave my translation in peace. Each of them can do a translation for himself that suits him. What do I care? Because he knew they didn't have the academic skill to do their own translation. This, he goes on to say, I can testify with a good conscience. Now you, now you begin to see, though he is very passionate, you get to see this man's humility. Listen to this. Though I can testify with good conscience, I gave my utmost effort and care, and I had no ulterior motives. I have not taken or wanted even a small coin in return. Neither have I made any by it. God knows that I have not even sought honor by it, but I have done it as a service to the dear Christians and to the honor of the one who sits above, who blesses me every hour of my life. If I had translated a thousand times more diligently, I should not have deserved to live or have a sound eye for even a single hour. And, and, And he's just saying, obviously, listen. I didn't do this to make money. I didn't get a single penny from this translation. I didn't do it for honor. I did it for the love of my savior and the love of fellow Christians. That's the only reason I did it. And you all want you to know, I am a sinner and I deserve hell. And what do you say about that? He goes on to say, all I am and have to offer is of his mercy and grace and deed of his precious blood and bitter sweat. Therefore, God willing, all of it will also serve to his honor joyfully and sincerely. I may be insulted by scribblers and papists, but true Christians along with their Christ, their Lord bless me. And I am more than amply rewarded if just one Christian acknowledges me as a workman with integrity. I care nothing about the papal donkeys as they do not care enough to acknowledge my work. And if they were to bless me, it would break my heart. Their insults are my highest praise and honor. 
Therefore, the matter itself at its very core requires us to say faith alone justifies. The nature of the German language also teaches us to say it that way. In addition, I have the precedent of the Holy Fathers. The dangers confronting the people also compel it, for they cannot continue to hang on to works and wander away from the faith, losing Christ, especially at this time when they have been so accustomed to works, they have to be pulled away from them by force. It is for these reasons that it is not only right, but also necessary to say, as it is plainly and forcibly as possible, faith alone saves without works. I am only sorry I did not add the words Ali and Allah and say without any works and any laws. That would have stated it with the most perfect clarity. Therefore, I will remain. It will remain in the New Testament. And though all the papal donkeys go stark raving mad. They may not take it away. Let this be enough for now. God willing, I shall have more to say about it in the treaties on justification, which he went on to write. Defending justification by faith alone. And he went into huge detail about it. And, you know, that's what makes Reformation Month so significant. That's why there are Protestant denominations. That's it right there. Faith alone justifies. It's either works or faith alone. If you were to look at the Council of Trent, which happened in response to Luther, they say anybody who believes that a man is justified by faith alone is accursed of God. Here we all are. Accursed by God, according to the infallible decree of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, of course, we knew that Luther has it right. And the question I have for you this morning is, are you going to heaven? Do you know you're going to heaven? Are you sure you're going to heaven? And if you sit there and you go with, yeah, I think so. Why? Why are you going to heaven? And if it comes to your mind, well, I've been a good person. I've tried to go to church. I haven't murdered anybody. If anything you do, I've read my Bible. I've given tithe. Anything you do comes to mind other than I have placed my faith in Christ alone or by the grace of God or Jesus' death on the cross for me or something like that. If your thoughts are directed towards Jesus, there's very good hope for you. If your thoughts are directed towards anything you do, then I would submit to you, you are still trusting in your works. I would exhort you, I would beg you, I would plead with you to come to Christ on the basis of faith alone. Believe it in your heart that if you trust Christ in faith, God will declare you to be righteous because of what Jesus has done, period. And be like the hymn writer. I love that line from the rock of ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is it, man. That is it. You come with nothing. And then God, by his good grace, declares you to be righteous Because Christ has done it all. Then once you have the relationship. You can then follow Christ by God's grace. And trusting and living by faith day to day. Those works then flow from 
your relationship with God, but they never create it. So I don't know where you're at this morning, but I want you to know justification is by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Luther, for raising him up. It's obvious he didn't even know what, what you were using him for at the beginning. He wasn't even sure of some of the things that he later wrote with much clarity and conviction. I pray that all of us would leave here praising you, rejoicing that you have saved us, not because we are good, but because you are good, not because of our good works added with grace, but because of grace alone, through faith alone, and the person and work of Christ alone. Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you this morning, may they come with a trusting, believing faith alone. And Father, may you change them into new creatures in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.